Well, I think that Genesis chapter 16 is kind of an interesting chapter. It already feels to me like this is a little little bit of a different sermon because this is a little bit of a different kind of chapter. It's interesting. The chapter begins with violence, not just in Abram's household, but in Abram's marriage. And this conflict in chapter 16 just goes unresolved. The chapter ends with God extending mercy to Hagar, but it's mercy that, I don't know, doesn't seem that merciful, which, which just kind of leaves us a little bit unsatisfied with Genesis chapter 16. It's just, it's just not what we would expect to read after Genesis chapter 15. After God's restatement of his promises to Abram, his layer after layer after layer of assurance of his faith and the promises, his covenant with Abram in chapter 15, we just have to think that Abram's faith is soaring. I mean, it's unassailable. Uh, Abram will be the great faithful man from now forever on. We can't imagine seeing Abram's faith ever fall again. But here in chapter 16, Abram is going to make a complete mess of his marriage and his family life. And it all has to do with his lack of patience and faith in God to bring about his promise of a son. You know, this is the, think about it, think about what we've been studying so far. We're in Genesis chapter 16. This is the first close-up look at a marriage in the Bible. We know people have been married, but we haven't really seen them interact or talk or do anything. And so it's, it's kind of sobering. Genesis chapter 16 is sobering. Just when we think Abram is finally, finally on the right track, he reveals that the sadly sinful condition of mankind goes on. And our sin hurts everybody around us. Even people who are believing in God, who are trying to be faithful to God's promises. The, the hope in this chapter, before, before everybody stands up and walks out, the hope in this chapter is, is in God who's merciful. So we read all this story about people, but it's God who's merciful. Honestly, this would be a complete, uh, completely just depressing if it weren't for God who's merciful and whose mercy always attends his purposes. That's helpful for us to understand. God's mercy attends God's purposes, not ours. So if you'd like to follow along on the sermon outline that's in the bulletin and in chapter 16, you'll see this sermon theme, God is, God is merciful to sinners. He shows saving mercy to his elect and providential mercy to all. Both prove that God is merciful and should be obeyed. Now listen as I read Genesis chapter 16. This is the word of God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband's wife, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, 
May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahay Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, it's kind of interesting to look at this mess. I hope you see a mess. If you don't, I'll try to uncover it for you. But Sarai has a really, really bad idea. Now, Sarai, in case you hadn't noticed, is Abram's wife. Moses re-emphasizes this through repetition. The redundancy is intended. In verse 1, Sarai is Abram's wife. In verse 3, Sarai is Abram's wife. And Abram is her husband. Just in case we weren't clear before, Sarai is Abram's wife. So the marriage covenant from Genesis chapter 2, 24 is in place with these two in their one flesh relationship. But Sarah has been in Canaan for 10 years now. She's 75 years old now, and God's promise of a son has not yet happened. This is sounding familiar, isn't it? Sounding a little bit like Abram from the chapter before. So Sarai has an idea. Now remember in chapter 15, as Abram was kind of going through this same crisis of faith, Abram had an idea to circumvent God's timing and God's way and provide an heir for himself. Abram's idea was to adopt Eliezer of Damascus to be his legal heir. That's how he would get this inheritance. But God said, no, your very own son shall be your heir. Abram's faith was waning and God said, no. Now Sarai's faith is waning and she has an idea of her own. And it's a terrible idea. When Abram and Sarai were sojourning in Egypt, a couple chapters back, Sarai was married to Pharaoh, remember? Another terrible idea that Abram got Sarai to participate in when he said, lie to them about being my wife. They acquired a servant there, a slave named Hagar. Now Hagar's name means sojourner, which is kind of interesting. Uh, ironically, Hagar from the land of Abram's sojourning earlier is now sojourning with Abram in his land. And Hagar is Sarai's maidservant. Now Sarai's idea is to give Hagar to Abram 
as a wife, really as a concubine. Ironically, that's what Abram gave Sarai to Pharaoh to be when they were in Egypt. Pharaoh was just collecting a harem. Abram said, not my wife. Pharaoh took her to be his wife. It's ironic, isn't it? Abram will impregnate Hagar, thus producing a son, whom Sarai believed would be the heir of God's promise to them. Now you can see Sarai's thinking as we walk through the verses, but remember, sin makes you stupid. That'll help to explain Sarai's thinking. Sarai is thinking that where God has failed, because in verse 2 she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's got a little bit of a grudge here. Where God has failed, she will succeed. So we know that she knows she's working deliberately to bring about the promise on her time and not God's time. Sarah is also thinking it's okay to break their marriage covenant. You know, polygamy was acceptable in, in the surrounding culture in their day. Buying a slave to be a surrogate, to be a concubine, was legal in the surrounding countries in their day. But nowhere does God approve either. Nowhere does God approve polygamy. Remember that when we read narrative, when we read story in the Bible, narrative is not normative. It doesn't mean that that's how it's supposed to be according to God. You could say narrative is descriptive, but not prescriptive. So we need to remember that when we're reading here. Everywhere that polygamy appears in the Bible, it's surrounded by people rebelling against God. Everywhere a polygamy appears in the Bible, it's, it's surrounded by people rebelling against God's creation order. Marriage is and always has been one woman and one man becoming one flesh for life. That's it. And sex has always been confined to the context of marriage. Sex inside marriage is a blessing. Sex outside of marriage is rebellion against God. What is normative is for a man to leave his family and to cleave to his wife and for them to have sex and have babies. That's normative. Now you wouldn't know it by living in our culture, but that's normative. Those three things go together by God's design for human flourishing. Marriage, sex, babies. That's normative. Now, Sarai doesn't just suggest this to Abram. Abram, I'd like to run something by you. Get your take on this, maybe. She doesn't ask Hagar if it's okay. Sarai just tells Abram. Sarai's behavior is the direct application of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's exactly what's playing out in Sarai in this marriage relationship. Sarai wants to control Abram. She wants to control Hagar. She wants to control her life. Rather than submit to God's control, who has promised to bless her. See, Sarai is no better than Eve at the time of the fall. It's a sad condition. Which would be astounding if it weren't followed by Abram's response. In not so many words, Abram says, Okay. You say so, honey. 
Abram receives Hagar, who is not his wife, from Sarai, who is her wife, his wife. Abram, you know, Moses is clear this is the case. And he commits adultery with Hagar and impregnates her. Abram's response is the only thing worse than Sarah's bad idea in the first place. Abram and Sarai here look like Adam and Eve at the fall. That's what Moses wants us to say, which is very sad, which is precisely what Moses wants us to understand. God has promised to give old Abraham and barren Sarah offspring his way in his time. He's promised it. God has not prevented Sarai from bearing children. She's barren. She has been all her life. God's going to open Sarai's womb so that she will bear children. But Sarai decides to override God's way to get to God's blessing, just as Eve did in the garden with the tree of the fruit of good and evil. Just as Eve, remember, Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. The same verbs are here. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Did you hear that? It's, it's an echo. Oh my gosh, we've heard that before. Do you remember what God condemned Adam for in the, in the garden after the fall? He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. Man, if your wife ever suggests that you sleep with another woman, it's a bad idea. Say no. It's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. It's a sinful idea. What was Abram supposed to do? Well, you already know. Abram should have put his arm around his wife and said, Honey, this is a bad idea. Now, I know, I know you're struggling with faith in God's promise. I know it's taking a while. I know you're struggling with faith in God's promise of a son, but he is the faithful one. Let's just keep believing in God and His ways and His timing and, and everything will work out fine. He'll bless us. But this is a bad idea. But just like Adam, Abram caves. He abdicates his role as the protector of his wife. He aids her in her sin and sins himself. He commits adultery. They trash their marriage covenant and they drag Hagar into it as well. Because Hagar has conceived an heir for Abram, she suddenly thinks she's better than Sarai. She succeeded where Sarai failed, right? That's what she sees. And she knows that that's what some of the people around her see. So Hagar dishonors and disdains Sarai. You need to remember that for a little bit later. Hagar starts behaving like she's the mistress of the house. The reality is that this was completely predictable. This was completely predictable. Of course Hagar would feel this way. Of course Hagar would act this way. You know, if, it's fun to read commentaries. It just depends on how much time you have, right? But those same laws that were written down back then that said you could take a concubine and, or, or have a second wife among the pagan cultures also had laws that said but that 
But that second wife, when she bears the heir, doesn't live in the same household as your wife. Because there'll just be friction. I mean, even the pagans knew this, right? You can buy a slave, you can have her bear the heir, but then you have to sell her. You have to get her away from the, 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 the lady of the manor. Because it'll just be problems when that boy grows up. I mean, even the pagans know this. It's entirely predictable. Well, Sarai goes ballistic. No sooner does Hagar conceive than Sarai wants to scrap the whole plan. Her plan! Because it worked. The scene is almost comical because it's so full of irony, but it's really just tragic. It's really just sad. She uses covenant sanction language. May the wrong be done to me be on you, husband. My goodness. Those are her opening words in the conversation. The marriage covenant of Genesis 2 is in view. She knows what her husband's supposed to do. She says, Abram, you're to blame for my suffering, my suffering of Hagar's contempt. Now, now here's the irony. Everything happened just the way she planned. I mean, you, you know, you're kind of like, gosh, Abram, you're, you're just in a lose-lose situation here. Sarah got exactly what she wanted, except for Hagar to end up the winner and her to end up the loser. That was not part of the plan. But again, when you're planning sin, sin makes you stupid, and you make stupid plans. Then Sarai cries out to God, May the Lord judge between us, me and my husband. Lord, you give me justice. Can you believe this lady? thing is, she's right. Abraham is the husband who bears responsibility for his wife Sarai and for Hagar and the baby. Sarai has done all sorts of wrong that she has to answer for, but Abram, just as Adam, Abram bears final responsibility for this mess. So how does Abram respond to his wife Sarai's complaint? Well, Abram's a coward. Abram, who marched 120 miles to defeat the four kings of the north to rescue Lot, hero, warrior Abram, is afraid to address conflict in his own household. Like Adam, he opts out. He just opts out of his responsibility as a husband. He fails Sarai as her wife. And whether he thinks Hagar is his wife or not, he fails her too. He just doesn't want to deal with the mess. I don't want to deal with this. Abram, the great leader, pushes the whole thing back onto his wife. She's your servant. You deal with her. There. Don't you like my leadership? And Sarai does. Sarai deals with Hagar harshly. Harshly. Hagar receives no mercy from Abram. And she gets no mercy from Sarai. Sarai deals so harshly with her 
that she runs her off. I know it says that it, when we read it the way it is, it kind of looks like, well, Sarah made the working conditions so bad that Hagar just decided she wouldn't put up with that. No, Sarai ran her off deliberately. You and the baby in your womb, get out. Through her harshness and her brutality. You know, we might say in today's terms that this is, uh, you know, this is a really bad look for Abram and Sarai, isn't it? They're supposed to be upholding their marriage covenant. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're supposed to be upholding their marriage covenant with one another. They're supposed to be trusting in God for His covenant with them. They're the people of faith. Instead, we see them living out Genesis 3.16. Sarai's desire is to master her husband, and Abram rules over her. Even if that rule is here, take it, deal with it. You see, the mood that Moses... Moses is our author. The mood that Moses captures here is one of sadness. It's sadness. This is all very sad. We thought things were getting better. We're meant to see this as man's sinful condition that has not changed since the fall, sometimes not even in his faithful people. What we're intended to understand is that God's people need the Lord. They need him close, and they need to stay tight to him, faithful to his promises, obedient to his word. What a mess! What a mockery of marriage. What a relational disaster. None of them get along. All of this came about when the people of faith began to distrust God's word. And what about Hagar? Hagar's not innocent in the matter either. Let's pick up in verse 7. Let me read this again, 7 to the end, and then we'll talk about it. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. You know, I think, I think most of the time, we're really not sure what to do with this passage of Scripture. We want, somehow, for everything to work out and for everybody to be happy. I mean, there's a baby involved. Can't they just all be happy? But that's not what happens. God shows mercy, but it's not the mercy we want to see, is it? We have to distinguish between God's saving mercy and His providential mercy. And then we have to 
let God be merciful as He chooses. Not as we would direct, but as He has chosen to direct. When we want to direct God's mercy, we get ahead of ourselves. And we start acting just like Sarai. So it's kind of a big deal that we understand this. Hagar's running away. Hagar's been driven away. She's no longer a sojourner, like her name says in Abram's camp. She's outside the camp. She's in the wilderness. She's at a spring on her way back to Egypt. She sure is the, is the wilderness desert land on the way to Egypt. And the angel of the Lord appears to her and speaks to her. Now, most commentators agree that this, this angel of the Lord is God himself. Now, there's reason right here in this verse to agree with that because of Moses' words down in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So, directly addressing God. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So this is a theophany. This is God appearing to Hagar. Moses is indicating this is more than an angel. This is God himself who has seen Hagar and spoken to Hagar and took after, looked after Hagar. It's a theophany. God manifests his presence by making himself visible in, in human form to Hagar. It's also clear from these words and these verses that Hagar does not know God. First, because she's... She's pictured, she's colored outside the camp. She's in the wilderness and she's heading back to Egypt and happily heading back to Egypt's idols. Second, because she doesn't know who God is. She doesn't know who God is when he appears before her and speaks to her. She doesn't know what to call him. So she makes up a name and calls him that. You are the God who sees me, so I'll call your name the God who sees me. Then she names the well, the place where God sees me. The point of clarification, Hagar does not call upon the name of the Lord. She calls the name of the Lord these words because she didn't know what else to call him. She's not crying out to God. She's just crying. Hagar's not a Hebrew. She's an Egyptian. She's a descendant of Ham. Abram and Sarah are descendants of Shem. She's not of the covenant. Ishmael in her womb is not of the covenant. Ishmael's an illegitimate child of a sinful, adulterous relationship. And yet, God extends his providential mercy to Hagar. He meets her personally. He speaks her name. Why is God merciful to Hagar? Why is God being merciful to Hagar and to Ishmael who are outside of his covenant people? Why does God show mercy to people who are, who are not saved? Pagans and idolaters. Well, turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me just for a minute. I think this will be familiar to you. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> so this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Slip down to verse 43. 
Jesus tells the people, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The illustration of Jesus' teaching is Genesis chapter 16. God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. God's merciful to the evil and to the good. God sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is merciful to the just and the unjust. That is the providential mercy of God. God's merciful to everyone because God's merciful. Because God's merciful. He's even merciful to our enemies by expecting us to love them rather than hate them. You see, God's mercy is not about us. God's mercy is about God. In verse 8, notice that God does not call Hagar Abram's wife. He calls her Sarai's servant. Only Sarai is Abram's wife. And God tells Hagar to go back to Sarai, her mistress, and serve her. Now when we hear that, we tend to think that God's mercy is not all that merciful here. I have to go back to her? The one who was harsh to me and ran me off? Shouldn't. Shouldn't mercy remove Hagar from her circumstances or remove Hagar's circumstances from her? Isn't that kind of how we think about mercy? Oh, God, be merciful to me and take this problem away. Oh, God, be merciful to me and take these circumstances away. It's not necessarily that God's going to remove circumstances, difficult circumstances, harsh circumstances from somebody and yet show them mercy. There's not Old Testament, this is, there's, there's not an Old Testament or New Testament promise that God's mercy results in removing your difficult life circumstances from you, even unsur- unspeakable circumstances like slavery. There's no promise like that. And yet God shows mercy. God tells Hagar to go back to Sarai and submit to her as her maidservant. The two women will never get along, but it's better for Hagar to live among the people of God, rather than the people of Egypt. Isn't it? It's a mercy to live among the people of God rather than the idolatrous people of Egypt. And Hagar's obedience to go back is not to be viewed as faith, it's duty. The Lord spoke and she did it. And she goes with this assurance, which is also mercy. I mean, what's going to happen to this baby? What's going to happen to this, the product of an illegitimate union? Well, she has a promise now that her offspring will be fruitful and multiplied to a number that no man can count. Sounds a lot like the promise that God made to Abram. 
That's the mercy of God. Okay, I'll go back, but what about my kid? Hey, don't worry about your kid. He's going to be fruitful and multiply. It's the mercy of God. Now, Hagar's son will be named Ishmael, which means the Lord hears or listens. The Lord who sees is also the Lord who has heard her affliction and responded with mercy. And the Lord gives this little prophecy of what Ishmael and his descendants will be like. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? He'll be a wild and independent person, antagonizing everyone that he comes in contact with. And everyone will antagonize him back. How is that merciful? We need to remember this, that Hagar is as culpable in sin as Abram and Sarai. There were no innocent parties in that trio. Hagar has let her pride and her self-significance run away with her. Hagar dishonored Sarai. Remember, I told you to remember that. Hagar dishonored Sarai. In doing so, she dishonored Abram. And there is a promise, in effect, from Genesis chapter 12, where God says, I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. You see, Hagar's under a curse. She's dishonored the people of God in a significant way. Even under a curse, God's merciful to her. Go back and live with the people of God. Your, your children will learn later on. Will be 12 princes. It's almost a going to be a mirror, a reflection of the blessing of God to Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes. Ishmael will represent 12 princes. They'll be their own people. They won't have gone back and grown up in Egypt as Egyptians and perhaps suffer the plagues of God to come on Egypt. Well, there's a mercy. But they will be their own people. It's not saving mercy, but it is God's providential mercy. It is real, and it is significant, and it is historic. But what we need to see about the mercy of God is that the mercy of God follows God's plan, not our plans. When we look around, we say, oh, God, be merciful in this way. Here's how I would direct your mercy. Oh, we look and say, well, that's not very merciful. Can't you be more merciful? Why aren't you merciful to take away these difficult circumstances for me? Well, God is, God is providentially merciful to many, many people. Many people have health and wealth. And most of them who have most of the health and wealth aren't believers at all. You can't use that as a gauge. You can't use that as a measurement for the blessings of God or the mercy of God. Not the saving mercy. But God is merciful to people who will never come to salvation. But it suits His purposes. 
not ours. God plans to use Ishmael and his offspring to chisel away at God's people to make them the people he would have them to be. And they have done that from before Ishmael's birth to this very day. It's the providential mercy of God that this runaway servant in the wilderness should be brought back to God's people and their offspring will become their own extensive people, which forces us to understand that God's mercy is not about us. God's mercy is always about God. So how can we walk obediently in God's mercy? Just two things I want to share. Why are, why are these accounts here anyway? Kind of, kind of where we started. Unless they're just here to make us really depressed. Why is Genesis chapter 16 here? I mean, neither of these accounts, the messed up family life, nor the encounter with Hagar in the wilderness, are very encouraging on the surface. <clears throat> I think first we just need to trust God's saving mercy. Trust God's saving mercy. We think we, think we look back and, you know, we went to Sunday school as kids and we think Father Abraham is just great. Father Abraham, up on a pedestal. The Pharisees, remember, looked at Jesus and said to the perfectly righteous Jesus, hey, we don't need to listen to you. We're children of Father Abraham. Remember that? And Jesus called them that they're children of their father, the devil. Because Abram rejoiced in Jesus. But they did not. Here, here is Abram, having seen and heard God, possessing the promises of God to be fruitful and multiply, just as Adam had. And just like Adam, Abram is still a sinner. Moses shows us that Abram is still just a poor, sad sinner after telling us that he's been made righteous. Just before this, Moses said, by his faith, he's been made righteous. And then we have this wonderful illustration of his need for Christ's righteousness imputed to him because he has little of his own. Abram is a sinner, but, but a sinner whose faith in God was credited to him is righteousness. Abram's little faith, Abram's wobbly faith, Abram's weak faith was fixed on a merciful God who had already counted him righteous in Jesus Christ, the promised seed and Savior. The same is true of us who believe in Christ by faith. Abram and Sarai in Genesis chapter 16 remind us we're not sinless, but that our sinless Savior died to save us while we were yet sinners. It's wonderfully clarifying. It's good perspective. Abram and Sarai remind us that we're not perfect, but that we are Christ's perfect bride. Abram and Sarai remind us that when we fail to show mercy to others, God is still merciful to us. You know, I'm wondering if if you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted Him by faith, I wonder if you've been slow to submit to Christ because of the sin you see in His people. 
I just wonder if sometimes you don't look at believers and say, my goodness, they're, they're messing up all the time. Look what they've done to their marriage. Look what they've done to their family. Look how they've treated those people. And I would ask you not to let that stop you from placing your faith in a merciful God. What you need to understand is, yes, they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the righteousness they have that saves them has been given to them because they did not have any of their own. And if you look closely, you will see, if you won't be too critical of them, you will see that they are getting better. They are getting better. And the same can be true for you. If you would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will still sin, but you'll get better. In Genesis chapter 16, Moses gives us a heaping dose of humility. That's what we're dealing with. So we will trust God's saving mercy and God will strengthen our weak faith as we walk in repentance and obedience to Him. I mean, just stop for a second. Why is God even merciful to us? Who go on sinning? Because God's mercy is about Him and not about us. And yet we have this rock-solid confidence that He will be faithful in His saving mercy to us in Christ. So let's walk by trusting in God's saving mercy. And let's walk in understanding of God's providential mercy. And why is Hagar here? Why, do, why does Moses show us God's mercy to her? Why is, why is God's non-saving mercy placed in front of us to think about and wrestle with this morning? Because while we wait and wait and wait in this life for God's saving mercy to be fulfilled at Christ's return... We will suffer to see God's providential mercy to those who are not the seed of the woman, but the seed of the devil. Or as the psalmist says, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? We find it so discouraging when God is merciful in various ways, earthly ways, temporal ways, to those who are outside of Christ, outside of the church. We get depressed and, and discouraged by that. And, and we get tempted. Maybe tempted to pride and to deal harshly with unbelievers. Maybe tempted to want to have earthly riches and temporal comforts. We may rethink God's promises and accept what we see instead of what we've been promised. Remember the eyes of Lot compared and contrasted to the eyes of Abram. Or we may remain steadfast, but let the effects of providential mercy pervert our understanding of the gospel. There are people who have done that. You've heard of them. They are the name it, claim it people who claim the banner of Christ. They are the prosperity gospel people who fly the banner of Christ. How many sinners have been deceived into thinking they're saved because God has been merciful to them in their temporal health and 
earthly wealth? Millions. It's no small thing. When you tamper with the truth of the gospel, it's no small thing. It becomes not the gospel. And it leads people falsely. And it deceives them rather than saves them. It's no small thing to let our understanding or our misunderstanding of the providential mercy of God to run away with things. Hagar and the mercy of God is not saving mercy here in Genesis chapter 16. But it should reassure us that we're on the right path, the narrow path, the path that leads to life, so that we'd stay on that path. And to recognize it's not the devil who blesses sinners. It's God who's merciful to sinners. Because his mercy is about him and not about us. He's the merciful God. And he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Again, he shows us that humility is better. He shows us that faith is stronger. He shows us that obedience is right. And so we do not covet the lost and what they have. We have mercy on them and we tell them the truth. Because we can see the truth and they can't. Yes, Abram had a son by Hagar. Verse 16. Yes, Ishmael prospered. Yes, it was by God's providential mercy. But they were not heirs to the promise. His mercy is about him. It's not about us. And yes, God is merciful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you that you're a merciful God. We can't undo what you are. You are merciful, and you have been merciful to all, the just and the unjust, the evil and the good. We thank you for your particular saving mercy in Christ to us. And to many, many more who would trust you for the promise of life that you give in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would you would show that mercy to many, that you would show it to all who are here this morning. Lord, that they might become worshipers of you. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.